Uh, I'm on. It says green. So, test, test, test. Am I there? All right. Hey, take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. It's good to be back with you again. You know, I was listening to my, my pastor this morning on the way here, and he said something that's so true as we talk about thirsting and hung, hungering for God. He said, you know, the only time that we're not hungry is when we're sick. If you think about that, that's pretty true. It's only when we've got the flu or we've got something going on, upset stomach, whatever, that we really don't want to eat. But no, mostly, if we're healthy, we want to eat. And I think the, the same goes uh, to be true for the Word of God, that we should be hungering and thirsting for that <clears throat> because it's only when there's something wrong spiritually in our life that we're not hungering and thirsting for that Word. And so I appreciated what they said about the, the Spirit of God being like air. We, we can't live without air, but just for a few minutes. Uh, I remember one time <clears throat> I was thinking about on a plane, and they give you the little pre-flight speech. And, you know, they say in the event of a cabin depressurization, the oxygen mask will drop down in front of you. Please put on your mask first and then assist those near you. And I used to think, well, why do they say that? I mean, that seems kind of selfish that I'd take care of myself first. But then it, it dawns on you that if you didn't, you would pass out and you'd be no good to anyone. And so there's a reason why the Lord encourages us to be strong and be full of His Spirit, to be seeking Him, uh, to be, as it were, putting on our oxygen mask first. Because it's in that way that we live out of the overflow of our lives and we care about what's going on in someone else's life. We're not just gasping for air and just trying to get through life ourselves. and it's all about self-preservation. I don't even really have time to think about the guy over there having trouble. And so put your oxygen mask on first. That's not selfish for you to take care of yourself spiritually, physically, emotionally. We need to care for ourselves. Self-care is important. It's not selfish. It's what allows you to care for others. But I'm, I'm in Hebrews today, which really doesn't have a whole lot to do with that, but it, it has a whole lot to do with our lives as believers today. Um, if you know the book of Hebrews, you know that it's a book about a group of, of Hebrew Christians who are close to giving up on their faith in Christ. Uh, they've been persecuted for their faith. Their land has been confiscated. We don't know what other kinds of physical types of, uh, you know, um, things they've experienced for being a believer in, in, that, in that culture that they were living. But whatever it was, they're suddenly feeling like, well, you know, maybe this new life in Christ is not what it's all cracked up to be. And I'm a, I'm a Jew, and, and I had a whole religion. I had a history. I, I had a heritage. And maybe I need to go back to that old Jewish religion. And so... Really what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to break down chapter 11, verse 39 and 40. Let's look at it really quick, and then we'll have a prayer. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39 and 40. And all these, meaning all those heroes of the faith that's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. And so all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, that's kind of an obscure verse in the middle of the Bible, but I, I want to give you some context. Uh, I believe it was D.A. Carson who said that text, uh, 
the text without context is a pretext for proof text, right? And I don't want a proof text. I don't want to preach my favorite sermon. I want to preach what the Word of God says. And so if we think about what Hebrews is about, it's about uh, this writer trying to say, look, you don't want to go back to the old you know, Jewish religion because it's empty now. It has been replaced by the gospel. It's been replaced by the church which Jesus established in the gospel that we preach. And as Jesus even himself would say, that the old wineskins of Judaism cannot hold the new wine of the gospel. Paul would say it this way. Uh, Paul would say it this way. Now Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so we understand that there's a reason why you don't want to go back to the old religion. Because all of its, you know, feasts and festivals and, you know, religious observations... They're all empty now because they've been fulfilled in Christ. And why would you go back to something when you have the object of what all those feasts, festivals, and rituals pointed to in the first place? Right? You've got the real thing. And in fact, that's kind of what he says. If I can just kind of go back and show you the the line of argument that the writer of Hebrews gives these Hebrew Christians, he starts in chapter 1 saying something like this, that Christ, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of, of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, what he's saying is, look, this is Yahweh God. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. That's exactly what God said to Moses at the burning bush. He's saying, I was at the burning bush. That was me there, Jesus. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present there even in the Old Testament. He is God. There is no fuller... uh, Uh, revelation of God than we saw in Jesus Christ. He was God with us, Emmanuel, right? The incarnation. So why would you go back to the old shell of a religion when we have that which is its fulfillment? And then he begins to make this case as he goes on and he says, you know, Christ is even greater than the angels. In other words, they apparently had a high uh, regard for angels in this this Hebrew faith that they, they had. And he says, look, Christ is more superior to the angels. For To what angel did, he, did God ever say, sit here until I make thine enemies thy footstool? And said, here, the worlds are going to be yours. You're going to rule and reign. He never said that to any of the angels. So Christ is superior to the angels. There's the first point. The second one is Christ is superior to Moses. Well, sure, Moses was that great deliverer of God's people out of the the exodus, out of Egypt. And he was used by God to deliver them and bring them to the promised land. Joshua finished the job, you remember, and Moses died there on the mountain. Yeah, he was a great deliverer. He was probably the greatest hero among Old Testament saints. But a greater hero is here now because here's one who is God in, in in human flesh who died personally for you on the cross, that your sins might be forgiven. And not only that, when he was placed in the tomb on the third day, he rose from the dead. He's alive forevermore, and he's coming again. You see, he is our spiritual deliverer. He's the one who delivers us from, from death, from sin. And that's even greater than delivering somebody from physical slavery or bondage, as Moses did those people uh, in the wilderness. He goes on to say that that Jesus is superior to the priesthood. 
And that's saying a lot. The Aaronic priesthood, those, those people who were specially chosen by God through the Old Testament who uh, first offered sacrifice for themselves and then went into that, one of them was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice for all the people, their sins. But yet here's one who's greater than any of those great high priests of the Aaronic priesthood because he entered into the veil, into the holy place. He who has descended has also ascended, right? Paul will say in Ephesians. So we have this, we have this Savior who is, is our high priest who goes before and he pleads our case, and yet one without sin. He is the one who is our advocate before the Father, the one who stands before the Heavenly Father and says, I died, I shed my blood for this one. They've placed their faith in me. The wrath of God will pass over that one. So we have one greater than the Aaronic priesthood. He's trying to make all of these cases. And here's one who who made a greater covenant with us than was made in the Old Testament. And he's making this case because he wants to show them, look, there's no reason to go back into the old dead shell of Judaism. It's dead. Now God is working through his son and through the New Testament church and through the gospel, which saves. And we come to this passage today. Because he finally comes to chapter 11 and he says, look, there's all of these people who they demonstrated faith. When God showed up and said, I want to involve you in my plan and my purpose, my redemptive history, they responded in faith. And he, so he gives that, that hall of faith, if you will, all through chapter 11. And even begins chapter 11 by saying that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so he's making this case that that what separated those Old Testament saints was not their goodness, not their greatness, but because they just simply responded in faith to God's invitation to be a part of something greater than themselves. And so again, I read the passage, verse 39 and 40, and all these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Let's, let's pray over the reading of God's word. Father, we're so grateful uh, for your word that reveals who you are and our relationship to you and the security that we have in you unto salvation through faith. And the Father, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And Father, we are your, your people, a unique people, a special people, set aside to live out what you want in this world, to show people and to point others to you and who you are, that they too might find this eternal life in you, a life that's not only life but abundant life. And so, Father, speak to our hearts. And I, I just come to this point so humbled and really afraid, Lord, as I stand here seeking to rightly divide the word of truth and wanting to share the gospel very clearly with your people here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you get the picture. These people are, they're struggling. They're being persecuted. They, they're thinking, well, you know, sometimes when people get persecuted and things are hard, they're like, well, maybe my faith isn't real, you know? I mean, it looks like I'd be more blessed if, if God were real and, and my, my relationship was, was real. It seems like I'd have a lot less problems in life. And they need encouragement. And I think this encouragement is something that we need 
as well this morning. And so here's the good news for us and for those believers, and that is we are strengthened and encouraged in our faith to hear about the faithful believers who have come before us. They and we are strengthened in our faith to hear about those faithful believers who have gone before us. I don't know about you, but it it does my heart good. It, It gives me strength. It gives me perseverance when I hear about other people who persevere. Does it you? I mean, it does me when I think about what, what, for instance, Job went through. And yet, in, in all of the midst of Job's suffering and pain and losing so much, he said, the good Lord giveth, the good Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And I know that my Redeemer lives and on the earth again will stand, and I, with my own eyes, will see him. Right? You see, that's faith. And that was a long time ago. Most people believe Job was one of the first books ever written, that it was old. And that was his faith. And then I'm going through stuff, and I know the Lord Jesus Christ, and I know that historically that he died on the cross and rose again, and there's no one that can disprove that. Man, I have even more to sustain my faith than even Job did at that point. But I'm encouraged to hear that he persevered. And others, and we could go through all of history. I mean, you could you could go through the history of the Christian church, and you could talk about people like Savonarola. You could talk about, you know, William Carey and David Livingston and Lottie Moon. You know some of those stories. I mean, they're just incredible stories of faith in the face of huge opposition and difficulty. I mean, you know, William Carey just felt led to go and preach the gospel and interpret the scriptures for the people in India. And he had to fight the missionary society in England to go. They were so predestinarian at that time, they said, if God intends to save those people, he'll save them himself. And William Carey said, no, I believe he said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the world, and go into all the world and preach the gospel. And lo, I am with you always. Right? Wow. He had to fight the missionary society to go. He did. His wife didn't know if she wanted to go or not. I don't know if I want to go to India. I kind of like it here in England. The day he left, she finally decided to get on the ship. He gets there. He translates the Bible into several dialects of Indian language. Many of those books, there's a, 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 a revival of people coming to faith. In the midst of that, his son, his young son dies. His wife is affected emotionally, irreparably by that. And for the rest of his life, he's dealing with the loss of his son and his wife struggling emotionally, psychologically. But he kept on. He kept on through all of the opposition, interpreting the scriptures faithfully so the people of India could hear the gospel. And we know that that's one of the strongest centers of Christianity in the world today. And it was because people like William Carey went. I could tell you story after story of that. I mean, little Lottie Moon, four foot nine Lottie Moon. She had the tenacity in a man's world to get a degree and to go to the to the middle of China and to, to just win people to Christ and to establish, you know, to, to, to establish churches and to be a part of that great revival. And you know where the gospel is growing Behind the bamboo curtain more than anywhere else in China today. My goodness. 
And when the Boxer Rebellion kicked in and everyone was starving and there wasn't food, she gave her food to people around her who she knew didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might have life for a few more days, that they might hear and believe before they stepped into eternity without Christ. And without food, after a while, she became very ill. They put her on a ship to send her home, and in Kobe, Japan, she passed away from malnutrition. She had gone too long without food to even receive food. She gave it all. Boy, she left it on the field, as we say in football, right? She left it all on the field. Does that encourage you a little bit? People like that that are faithful. And there there are people like that throughout all of the Scriptures, throughout all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament and all of Christian history. There are people like that, and that encourages our faith. Those first century Hebrew Christians needed their faith encouraged and given This crazy season of post-COVID and pre-COVID and everything we've lived through, we need encouragement too, don't we? We absolutely need the encouragement of God. You know, you would think with our faith, you know, without faith it's impossible to please God, but those who come to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You would think once you established a particular belief or truth in your mind, it'd just be there forever. But that's not the way faith works. Faith, Faith is something that has to be exercised. It's like your muscles. If you don't use them, you lose them. You lose muscle tone. You have atrophy. Faith is something that that you have to refresh yourself and remind yourself of. You know, truths just don't stay there. After a while, there's all this, you know, we're just bombarded by information continually through our phones and, and social media and other sources. And if you're not refreshing yourself in the Word of God, you're going to forget it. You're going to forget what you believe to some extent. It's going to start getting crowded out by worldly and human philosophies of men, human ideas. It's just the way it works. Faith has to be refreshed. It's why we're encouraged to come together, to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but to do it all the more as we see the day of Christ approaching. We're supposed to do that because I know I'm not preaching any new, startling revelation of truth to you today. I know that I'm reminding you of things that you already know, but you need to be reminded of that you might refresh your faith. C.S. Lewis says, we are far more emotional beings than we want to admit. And he says in his book, Mere Christianity, faith is the art of holding on to our convictions in the face of of our changing emotions. He also says faith is the art of telling our emotions where to get off. In his book, he gives the example of going to the, um, the dentist, and he says, I know in my mind that there's a thing called anesthesia and that he's going to put me under and he's going to work on my teeth and I'm not going to feel it. But he said every ounce of my emotion and my humanity says and screams out, I don't know if it's going to work or not. <laughs> You see, our emotions take over. We have irrational fears. It's why people don't get on planes or things like that. You know, they just they get these irrational fears about something. And, and it's just like, no, I can't do it. And so faith has to be refreshed. It has to be reminded. What the writer of Hebrews is trying to instill in his readers here is a stability and a constancy of faith regardless of the circumstances that they're facing. You know, Paul finally came to a place in his faith where he says, 
For I know whom I have believed in, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Does that sound like certainty of faith to you? Does it sound like a conviction? We need to come to the point of conviction. You know, Calvin, Calvin Miller was right. We've got a ton of people out there with a lot of opinions about things, but we just don't have a lot of people with convictions about things. We need more people with convictions and less people with opinions. Just read social media. Everybody's got an opinion. Well, opinions don't get things done. They just irritate and divide people. But convictions get things done for God. You know, um, Hudson Taylor was uh, one of the great missionaries to China. It says he labored for seven years before he saw his first person come to Christ. I, I don't know if I could have held out that long. But he said this about faith. As we're thinking about you know, what faith is, what it's not. He said, it's not great faith that we need, but faith in a great God. It's not great faith that we need, as though we're, you know, the health and wealth crowd. If we just had a little more faith, we wouldn't have got sick. If we had a little more faith, we'd be more prosperous. You know, if we had a little more faith, you know, something bad wouldn't have happened. No, no, it's not great faith that we need. It's not a lot of faith that we need. It's just faith in the, the right thing, the right person. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus said. If you think about it, he said, he said, if you have faith like what? A mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it will. So it's, it's good to have a lot of faith, but it's more important to have faith in the right person or the right thing, which is the Lord God. He's not a thing, but he's a person. Because when your faith is in the right person, then great things begin to happen. And, you know, I always want to insert just a word to those people who they're like, you know, they're a naturalist, they're scientific, they're maybe atheistic, and, and they're like, you know, there's no God. We just live in a natural order, and things just happen because of natural processes and so forth. And, you know, the world is just a product of time and chance, and uh, we're just a product of evolution and a lot of change over time. And and those kind of things. I, I would just say a simple word to those folks. And that would be this, is even that position requires faith. Because no one was there at the creation of the world. We can't reproduce that in the laboratory. And nobody ever walks along the beach and there's a Rolex watch laying there that somebody left when they went back to their condo and you pick it up and Hopefully, it's not finders, keepers. You're going to turn it in and see if somebody will claim it. But you pick it up. You would never say, well, look, this watch just created itself and appeared on that beach. Right? No one ever goes to a car show, and they're looking at the Lamborghini. They're looking at the whatever else car you like, the, the Corvette. <clears throat> and, they don't go, and they don't say, Wow. How in the world did that ever evolve to be that, you know, you know, just to exist like it is? It's a highly evolved car. It's put itself together. came from nothing. How many parts does a car have? You know, 20,000 maybe, 30,000? I don't know. And yet your body's made up of about 50 billion cells or strands of DNA. Anyone going to say those all got together just randomly and formed the person that you are with all the various operating systems in your body? You know, 
your respiratory system, your skeletal system, your organ system, your skin, your vascular system. And I've left a lot of them out, your nervous system. And all those could have got together perfectly to form this incredible thing called the human body that you are that can walk and talk and jump and do gymnastics like our gymnastics team. (laughs) Right? It just came about by accident. No, I don't think so. I'm just saying to the person who is the adamant, atheistic unbeliever that that is a statement of faith in itself. And you've just chosen to use your faith to say there's no God. I'm using my faith to say there is. And as Lee Lee Strobel said about evolution, I just don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I just don't have that much faith. It takes a lot more faith to believe that than it does that the Lord Jesus Christ, that he created everything there is, was created by him and for him and through him. Amen? This is his world. Secondly, what does this passage tell us? It tells us we validate and perfect the faith of these Old Testament saints by our faith in Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. We validate and we perfect the faith of Old Testament saints by our belief in Jesus. Here's what our passage says, verse 39. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. But with us, they are made perfect is the implication here. Because of our faith in Jesus, their faith is made perfect. And I used to pray and puzzle over this. What in the world is that saying? And then it dawned on me as I was studying. These Old Testament believers, they lived and they died believing in a Savior a redeemer, a king who would someday come and set this world right and vindicate their faith in Yahweh God. And all those Old Testament saints lived and died without ever seeing that promise kept. They died believing it, but not seeing it, right? When Christ came into the world, people say that is the great fulcrum, that is the great continental divide of all human history. Because from that point on, as we look back today, we see a Savior who lived a perfect life. He was born a miraculous birth in Bethlehem, lived a perfect life, died a vicarious death on the cross for the sins of the world, was placed in a grave, and he rose again on the third day and then ascended back to the Father. And we get to look back on that. We get to see that. As as Peter would say, we have the word of the prophets made more certain what all those Old Testament prophets were trying to prophesy when, they, when, when Isaiah was talking about a, 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 a virgin will conceive and bear a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel. What they were trying to prophesy and what they couldn't quite see, but God was giving them the words and leading them to pin this scripture and this prophecy was the Savior that we know, love, and believe in. We have the word of the prophets made more certain. So what I'd say is, is that we don't have a superior salvation to the Old Testament saints, but we have a superior knowledge. They believed in God. They believed he was going to redeem the world in them somehow. They believed that he was going to send a redeemer king, a Messiah, an anointed one is what that means. They lived and died without ever seeing it. But God eventually sent that Redeemer, King, Messiah, and his name was Jesus. As Paul Harvey would would have put it, our salvation is the rest of the story to their faith in a future Redeemer. 
Isn't that the way it is? That's all I'm trying to say. And finally, the author of Hebrews is demonstrating our equal status and significance in God's redemptive plan to those most preeminent Old Testament heroes of the faith. I don't know about you, but it's easy to sometimes think that we're really just a nobody in the big scheme of things. And and the world really works really hard to make you feel like you're insignificant, that you're a nobody. But according to the scriptures, apart from you, those Old Testament saints weren't made perfect, right? That they needed us to come along and to believe in this gospel and the Savior. To validate what they had looked forward to in faith. That it was true. That they were saved by that faith. That's, that's just incredible. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. He's realizing how discouraged these Hebrew believers are. He's trying to encourage them and to say, look, we stand in a long line, a long lineage of the faithful, and you're a part of God's big redemptive history. History is his story. And you're a part of it. Don't feel like you're a no one. Don't feel like you've left the only true religion. You're in the only true religion. And yes, God continues to save Jews. I'm not anti-Israel. You know, that's what Paul says there in, you know, Romans 9 through 11. He basically says that in every generation, God has reserved for himself. There are people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. He, He gives the example of Elijah. When Elijah was feeling down and like he was the only one serving God. And he said, don't get down, for I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul quotes that in Romans. He says, we need to realize God's still saving Jews from every generation. There's a remnant of every generation of Jewish people that are hearing the gospel and believing it and accepting Christ, and that's the way they're getting saved. You don't get saved through any other kind of orthodoxy or any kind of religious practice, any other kind of works or, or any kind of, you know, uh, Offerings and sacrifices in a temple. That's not how anyone will ever be saved again. They weren't saved then by those sacrifices. The blood of bulls and goats can never justify a person. It's through Christ and through faith in Him. And you're a part of that same lineage of faith, those people that I've been working through throughout history to bring about my redemptive purposes and my gospel in the earth and my church in the earth. You're a part of that. Don't feel like you're nobody. He's putting every New Testament believer on the same level, the same plane as that most preeminent Old Testament saint. And we look at that hall of faith of chapter 11, and there's some pretty big names there. There are household names that people still name their children after. We're like, well, yeah, we'd never be like that. But what we need to understand is those Old Testament saints... They didn't receive notoriety and fame because of their own goodness and their own initiative and their own ideas. They only received, an, uh, they only received fame and notoriety because God came to them and knocked on their heart's door and said, I'm doing something redemptively in history. Will you join me in this? And they said yes by faith. And they became a part of God's great redemptive history through that. And God did that through them. It wasn't their goodness works or you know, brilliance. It was just them saying, here I am, Lord. You know, they, they, they keep saying it's not about your ability. It's about your av- availability for God to use. He didn't just pick the, the gifted and the talented. Look at, look at the disciples, my goodness. They were a ragtag combination of folks. 
He comes to the ones who are available, who say, yes, Lord, here am I. Send me, like Isaiah did. You know, I remember when Jesus was telling the crowd what an awesome person and a prophet that John the Baptist was shortly after he was beheaded. He says something at the end of the verse that we often just read over. But it's worth noting as we think about who you are and your significance in the big picture, in the big scheme of things. He says in verse 11 there at the end of that, after saying, you know, how he was this incredible prophet. But he says, Verily I say unto you, among them are born of men that are born of men, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Notwithstanding, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. I was like, what? I'm not greater than John the Baptist. This is Jesus' kind of hyperbole way of saying that in Christ, we're all equal. We're a part of this great redemptive plan. We've been brought into this family of God. God doesn't have any favorites. He's, he, he has no partiality, right? He's no respecter of persons, Galatians tells us. He loves us all equally. He may use us differently, but he loves us all completely and fully and perfectly. And you're you're not inferior to any of the greatest of the Old Testament saints, including John the Baptist, who Jesus says was the greatest prophet who ever lived. Notwithstanding, he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Folks, I don't, I don't know what you think heaven is going to be like, but I, first of all, I don't think it's all like we're just these translucent beings with no body or mass and we're floating around on clouds singing praises for all of eternity, Right? Just ethereal beings with no mass or life or purpose. I don't, I don't think so. There's a new heaven and there's a new earth. And when we're resurrected, we're, giving, we're given physical bodies with which to live in this new heaven and new earth. So you'll have a physical body just without all of the problems that this body has, all of the sickness, illness, weakness, infirmity that you experience now. A body that Je- like Jesus had when he came from the grave, fit for for living for all of eternity with God and his people. That's the first thing that I I see about it. But the other thing that I see is, who do we think we're going to be with up there? Now, I agree with C.S. Lewis. There will be surprises (laughs) about who's there, (laughs) right? There will be surprises. But who do we think we're going to be with? We're going to be with all of God's people from the beginning of creation who had faith in God and trusted him. And in the Old Testament, they were saved by believing that God is who he said he is and he'll do what he said he'll do, right? And you and I are saved by believing that God is who he says he is and he'll do what he said he'll do. In our case, we have fuller knowledge. He he became a person in Jesus, died for our sins, rose again. He's coming again to judge this world in righteousness, and he's going to come for those who are his. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Amen. we got something to look forward to. And it's not just floating around on clouds. It's fellowshipping with the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the great saints all the way back to the creation who trusted in God. 
And they were saved by looking forward and trusting in what God said in his word. And we're, we're saved by looking back to something he did for us and also forward to something he's going to do in the future, our, our blessed hope, the hope of resurrection, Christ in you. Right? Man, we have something to look forward to, and we need that encouragement, and they needed this encouragement, and they needed to know that their lives matter and their lives had significance. They didn't have to go back to the old empty Judaism. They had it all in Christ, but they just weren't seeing it because they were being persecuted and suffering hardship. And sometimes that can cloud the view of how blessed we are. I want you to live with the confidence that God is involved in your life just as he was in the lives of believers recorded in the Bible. And even though our faithful deeds will not be recorded in Scripture, they are being recorded in heaven in the infinite mind of God who knows all, sees all, and remembers all. And he will reward you. He will reward you. He will say, good, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into thy rest. He will say that to those of us who have believed, who have had faith, who have trusted him to do what only he can do. Salvation is God's work in us, not our work for him, right? And we just simply believe. That's what I want you to do. If you're struggling today with, you know, where you stand, maybe you've just been kind of going to church because mom and dad bring you, or your wife goes, or your husband goes, and you kind of go along to be together, You need to step forward and say, I'm one of those faithful. I want to identify myself with Jesus Christ and his people. And you may need to do that through baptism. If you've never been baptized as a profession of your faith, you need to do that. You need to get with Roger as quickly as you can or one of the elders here. And you need to say, look, I, you know, I've believed, but I've just kind of been sitting on the fence. And I realize I need to get in the game. I need to be faithful. I need to start living, being, being on mission. God. And, I, and I've never been baptized. I've never expressed publicly my faith in Jesus through believer's baptism. You need to do that. If you've never joined the church, you can just come along and you're, maybe your letter is somewhere in some little church years ago from where you grew up or whatever. You need to move your letter to this church. You need to say, I'm going to serve with these people. If God's put you here, you need to express your commitment and bring yourself under the authority of this church and say, I'm going to let these people hold me accountable to live on mission for Christ, and I'm, I'm going to, you know, love and spur others to good deeds, and so I'm putting my letter here. I'm, I'm making a public statement of my desire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ right here, but the most important decision that you can make is if you've never, in your heart of hearts, you know you've never said, Lord Jesus, here's my life. Take it. I know you died for me. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I can't save myself. I know that what you did for, for me on the cross, I need to receive that, and so today I am. And I'm so grateful for what you've done. And I'm never going to look back. I'm just, I'm, I'm in all the way. Man, we need some people that just, they're just in. They're all the way in. Not just dangling their foot, tipping their toe in the water. We need people who are all in. Maybe that's been one of my faults throughout life. But I don't do anything halfway. If I'm in, I'm in. And that's the way the Lord wants us about his kingdom, about his, his gospel. You need to be all in. And you need to express that publicly. You may do that this morning. You may find one of our elders and you may just say, would you pray with me? Would you just counsel with me for a minute? You need to do that. If you want to find me, I'm going to be standing around after this service. You say, I got something I got to talk to you about. It's okay. I'll stay here till however long you need. But folks, those are decisions you can't 
keep going on through life and not making, with people dropping left and right. You don't, you don't have any guarantees. And I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just, that's just the facts. It's just the reality. If you just watch the newspaper, if you look, look at the newspaper, if you watch the news, what you realize is that James was right. Our life is a vapor that appeareth for just a while and then vanisheth away. You don't know how long you're going to live. You don't know how many days you have left. I see children dying every day. I see middle-aged people dying every day. I see elderly people dying every day from every cause imaginable under the sun. It's given unto men once to die, and then cometh the judgment. There is a day of reckoning coming, and you need to be ready. You need to know Jesus.